every time, Kanye makes me want to go into We Are War with Terrorism. Just go into it. Hey, welcome. If you are listening in, you're so confused because copyright laws do not allow us to play that song online, but that was Kanye and the Jesus Walks song as we continue the series, Jesus Walks. Any Diet Coke fans in the room? That feels like a left turn. Yes. Wow. There's a lot of animosity towards Diet Coke. Good grief, people. I'm a big Diet Coke fan. And uh, if I was going to drink a soda, I'm going to choose Diet Coke all the time. My wife will make fun of me. And she's always like, why would you choose Diet Coke? And I don't know why there's like a bad rap on Diet Coke. It feels like a very clear option to me. You got one soda that has zero calories in it. And then you got one that's got 180. Why would you choose? Like people are like, dude, that's not manly to drink Diet Coke. It feels like it's stupid to not drink Diet Coke. Why would the options are this? And I only aspartame and, and whatever that's doing is not exactly probably great. But when it comes down to the option of the two drinks, I'm like, dude, I'm going to go with that every single time. It's like, this is calorie free. Or I can like hit the treadmill for an extra two hours to do that. This feels like a no brainer. And the reason why is because like for me, I'm going, hey, it feels like, look, it's not as good as real soda. That's probably the biggest knock against it. But it's pretty good. You know, it's, it's not that bad. And it doesn't come with nearly as much of kind of the, the uh, side effects or consequences or the calories that come with it. And you're sitting here, you're probably wondering, what is this? Can we get to the Bible already, Pastor? I'm going somewhere. And it's intentional because here's why I introduced that. In the same way that, that in that scenario, or with me, I'm like, dude, hey, it's not nearly as good as the real thing, but hey, it's pretty good, you know, it doesn't come with all the, all the calories included, is a way that a lot of us think about the Christian life. It's like, hey, it's not nearly, you know, following Jesus, it's not nearly as fun or as good as the real life out there to do whatever you want would be awesome, but it's not that bad, and you don't go to hell, and that's pretty cool, and uh, <laughs> that there's people in the room, like, that's how people think about Christianity. They're like, hey, look, no, of course, we all know Diet Coke's not as good as the real thing, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not that bad and it doesn't have the calories. Hey, Christianity, look, the Christian life is, I mean, we all know it's not as good as the real thing or the real life of doing whatever you want to all the time, but, you know, it's not terrible and, uh, and you don't go to hell. And a lot of us think that way. That we think that, hey, that the Christian life isn't as good. It's not the abundant life. It's not as great as, as doing whatever you would want to do. It's not, as, it's not really the greatest life that you can experience. But, you know, it's kind of close. It's in the ballpark, and, and it has some perks. And you are so, and I, to any degree that I believe that, have been so misled. The extreme of someone believing that idea of, like, hey, the Christian life, you know, it's not that great, but uh, you get to go to heaven someday and not hell, and it's close is not at all what the Bible presents. Some of us walked in the room, and that's what we think Christ is offering us. That's what we think the Christian life really is. It's like, it's not Diet Coke, it's kind of diet life, is how we think about it. We're like, yeah, it's in the ballpark, but really it's all about the next one. And the other extreme is that maybe you didn't come into the room believing that. Maybe you came into the room and you believe the Christian life is really, you know, it, it, it's not that big of a deal and it really doesn't matter. It, it also is all about eternity, but you can kind of live however you want right now. As long as you trust in Jesus, you prayed the prayer, you get to go to heaven when you die, you can have sex in a windmill all you want. It doesn't even matter. Some people are so confused right now. But is that it? I mean, is that what it is? It's like, hey, I can do what I want when I want. I know where I'm going when I die and it doesn't matter what I do. And Jesus doesn't even really care about it because Jesus does 
love me. Let me be abundantly clear. Jesus loves everyone in this room and everyone who said any sentence is close to what I said just now. But that's also not the Christian life. And so some of us are going to walk into the room, and we came into the room tonight, we're, we're buying a, a uh, bill of goods on either side that like we think, hey, Christian life, it's really not that great, but you know, you got to do it if you want to go to heaven. Or we think, hey, it doesn't even matter how you live. I can live however I want, do whatever I want, whoever I want. It doesn't even matter. And both of those are missing what Christ says he calls us to in experiencing the abundant life, the best life that you could possibly experience. Both of those in error miss out on what Jesus says he ultimately came to invite and to call you into. And both of those, candidly, like here's the challenge if, if you fall on either of those extremes. If you're the person who's like, dude, I do whatever I want with whoever I want, you can't tell me nothing else. Or if you're the person who's like, look, I don't love following Jesus in this kind of diet life, but it's as good as it gets. Both of those have their downsides if you follow those lines of thinking. On the one hand, you're gonna miss out not just in this life, but in the eternity to come. If you just go through the motions of saying, hey, life is not that great, but I guess it's just what we have to do um, so I don't go to hell, you're going to find yourself depressed. You're going to find following Jesus is exhausting. Is anything but what Jesus says when he's like, hey, put on my yoke. My burden is easy and light. Come to me if you're thirsty. That's not going to be what you're experiencing. You're going to be experiencing, hey, I guess I just have to if God's going to love me, if I'm going to have eternal life. So that's the one side. And then on the other side, if you're like, I'm going to live however I want with whoever I want, you are going to either likely, you have bought some version of Christianity that's not Christianity at all, or you're going to live just for this life and for all of eternity. There's going to be a way in which you regret not having stewarded and lived in line with God's will and God's way. And so both of those fall short and fail to really capture the essence of what Jesus said when he was on this planet. Here's what I've come and the life that I'm inviting you to. And there's areas in which both of us, or many of us, have fallen for some of the lies contained in both of those. So tonight, we're going to look at a story as we continue the series, Jesus Walks, that captures the heart of what Jesus said. Here's the life that I'm calling you to. Here's what you can know. Here's what you can expect, both in this life and in the life to come. It's a very famous story. Jesus Walks, if you're just joining us, it's a series we just kicked off a couple weeks ago, where our heart for the next six weeks is to capture some of the most uh, meaningful encounters that we see Jesus having with people inside of the New Testament, and our hope is that you see Jesus, that all of us kind of walk away going, wow, that's what, when God was on this planet, when the Savior walked around, God in a bod on this planet, walking around, interacting with people, here's what he looked like. Here's what the God who's there is like, because we're told that Jesus is God. And our heart is that over the next six weeks, you're seeing more and more of what the Savior who's there is like. And more and more, align yourself and align ourselves with the reality or what he says, where life is found. So tonight, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at a dude. If there was ever a uh, most eligible bachelor award in the Bible, other than Jesus, uh, it would be the guy we're going to look at. His name has been famously called the rich young ruler. This guy is the total package, ladies and gentlemen. He's got riches. He is young. He is a ruler, which just basically means he's a part of the religious synagogue. He had influence. This dude is the guy that you want to bring home to your mom. He's the guy that you uh, grow up thinking, oh, if only I could have dated someone like him. When he lived, this little rich young ruler, the community around would have said like, man, that, that's an upstanding citizen. This is Tim Tebow, if you will. And uh, <laughs> only not a Christian. And uh, but that's who the man that we're going to see is. And he asks some very relevant questions. And in the dialogue that he has with Jesus, we are given a vision into what Jesus says life ultimately is about. And how if you 
follow either of those different directions of, hey, I'm gonna work my way to God, or it's really not that great, but I guess I have to, or hey, I'm gonna do whatever I want. You're gonna fall short of experiencing the life that he calls you to. So we're gonna look at three observations really from this story. It's in Mark chapter 10. This story's included three times in the Bible. Not a lot of stories that are like that. Three different times. Matthew includes it, Mark includes it, and Luke includes it. Matthew includes it. So in other words, it's, it's a story that God wants to make sure you know that his people learn from, that is recorded for all of history for people to observe and see what God's heart for the life that he's called you to experience is. So we'll start in verse 17 and uh, go from there. As he, that's Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him. So in Luke's gospel, we're told that he is a ruler. In Matthew's gospel, we're told that he's young. And he, all three of them eventually say that he's a very rich man. So again, total package. He's, a, he's, the, uh, he's the guy that you want to be. If you're a, a fellow in the room, he's the guy that you want to marry. If you're a lady, you would think. Runs up to Jesus, kneels before him. And he asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus stops. He doesn't even immediately answer the question. It's kind of funny if you read it on the surface. like, Jesus, what are, you, what are you saying right there? He's trying to address a fundamental flaw in this guy's worldview that, hey, are you equating me with God? You know that no one on the planet is good but God, right? So are you calling me God? Is that what you're saying right now? Because there isn't anyone who is good except for God alone, and he is addressing a flawed perspective that many people still today believe that there are, are good people, there are bad people, that goodness is something that you can achieve if you're uh, a good enough person in the way that you behave. And Jesus says, hey, hey, listen, let's all get on the same page here really quick. You know that nobody ever who has ever lived is good, right, except for God. And he's addressing a man who would go on in a few sentences later to be like, hey, uh, he basically had an identity that he thought he was good, and Jesus right off the bat says, hey, if you're gonna know the life that God calls you to, you need to know that there's only one who is good. There's never been a person who's lived up to the standard of God's definition of what goodness is. The first idea really from the text and really that the Bible over and over emphasizes is the idea that you are going to, the Christian life is all about you just pursuing being good is a lie. The goal of the Christian life is not just you being good. Jesus did not come to make bad people good or decent people gooder. He came to make dead people alive, to make people new, to totally transform. It's not just some like, hey, I'm gonna come in there and kind of renovate just a little bit, this fixer-upper. He came to tear down the house and in its place put something entirely new he's building and creating. The Christian life, and you need to know if you're gonna ever become a Christian or if you're in the room and you would say to be a Christian, in order to trust in a savior, you have to know that you are a sinner. And Jesus would say, and this is such like a hard truth for us to believe because I think a lot of us think, not that bad of a person. Like, I feel like I'm pretty good. And Jesus would say, there's no one who's ever lived who is good. No one listening to my voice right now who is good by God's definition. No one tuning in at any locations, no one in this room, not your grandma, not anybody who's ever lived, he would say. And that's, that's honestly, like, that's hard for me to believe. And I think it's because, like, my standard of goodness is kind of relative. Like, I think that I'm good or bad or not that bad just kind of based on the fact that I bump into people and I'm like, I feel like I'm a good person, try to be nice, pay my taxes, you know, I would give somebody money if they were looking to eat and all of the ways that I find myself good 
oftentimes are kind of in comparison of people around me. And so I look at like the extremes and I'm like, oh, that, that's a really bad dude. I am not, that's a bad apple right there, I'll tell you that much. Or I look at people who are, who are really good and though I wouldn't put myself there with the epitome of the, the you know, kindest life or kindest person ever, I'm like, I certainly wouldn't put myself at the most evil person life. So I bet I'm close to whatever the standard of good is. The problem with even that thinking that a lot of us have is it, it really breaks down because no one even knows what it means to be good. Like to embrace the idea that, hey, there are good people and bad people in the world would be to embrace not just something the Bible says is wrong. It would be to embrace something that none of us would even agree on what is good. Like what, what is the standard or the definition of good? If you do this amount of good things, you're a good person. Like, like on the scale in kind of our life or kind of in our mind, most of us would begin to think through on the spectrum of humanity, there's a scale and at some point in terms of behavior, if you cross over onto this side of the line of the number of good things that you do in life and the ways that you live your life, you're probably a good person. If you, if you don't and you live really terribly and you hurt other people, you murder people, then you'd be a bad person. None of us would agree even where to put the line of where, hey, everything past this side would be good, everything over here would be bad. Like, let's say if this is the spectrum of human behavior and this person over here is good, when I think about the epitome of like good living or good person, I would say, man, at the top of the list other than Jesus, I would put Mother Teresa. There you go, Mother, looking good. And she's over there in Calcutta serving lepers. She gives up her whole life. I mean, she's like, dude, I'm gonna lay it on the line. I'm gonna go serve people. I'm giving everything that I have to you, God. I'm gonna be single for the sake of the gospel. I'm gonna do everything I can to serve the least of these, even if it means me contracting leprosy. She gave up her entire life to serving. So I'd be like, dude, that, that would be the epitome, other than Jesus, of a really good life. There may be some other examples that you would insert. So fill in the blank, whoever you would put over here. This is kind of the height of it. And then over here, we'd have like the universal symbol of what it means to be evil, which I think all of us would agree on. Uh, no, that's wrong. <laughs> Sorry about that. We put this like right here, maybe. And uh, I'm just messing. Good grief. It's going to get an email. I'm like, that's really not appropriate. Okay. Over here, we would have something like Hitler. Where we go like, okay, so over here, we got Mother Teresa, the best life you could probably live. And then over here, Hitler, not a great guy. And uh, so wherever the line would be of everyone over here is a good person and then everyone closer to Hitler, all of us would disagree. Like some of you may be like, yeah, most people are pretty good except for, you know, kind of over here, definitely not good people. But I think for the most part, generally, you'll hear people say things like that, that I, I just think everyone has a good heart or I think most people in general, you know, are good. Maybe you're on the other side and you'd be like, no, I think most people are not good. Are you, you seen the world out there? And you'd be like, no, it's definitely only like the top 10%, kind of like the college rule. That is the people who are good in life. And so we wouldn't even agree on the same standard. Maybe you'd go like, man, now it's 50%. You gotta just divide the line and do 50% more things. Maybe it's like 70, kind of the college or the school grading system. That's where it all came from. You gotta do 70% good things in order to be good. But the point being, none of us, would all land on the same place in terms of the scale of what even good is. But what is clear in the Bible is the standard of where the line is for what's good and not falls way past Mother Teresa. It would be as though the rope went way over there for all of eternity. That Mother Teresa, as good as she was as a person, falls way short of God's standard of what is good. And Jesus is starting this conversation by going like, hey, before we go into eternal life, you know that the goal is not a good life, right? Or the goal is not you just being good. That would be an impossible goal. No one is good but God. So if you think like the whole message of God is just here to like, hey, I'm just trying to make good people gooder. You've bought a lie. He's saying that, man, 
you're, you're setting out for a goal that you'll never be able to reach because God's standard and definition of goodness is way different than yours. Like God's definition of goodness, here's I think further why it's hard for us. The standard of goodness according to the Bible that God has is completely good. Like on earth, for me, it's kind of like, yeah, if it's mostly good, if they're mostly a good person, then they're a good person. But the Bible says something crazy. It's like, hey, if there's any part of them that's not good, they're not good. They're a bad person. It's like there's certain things in life where uh, we've all seen, hey, if there's any part that's not good, then uh, the entire thing is ruined. Uh, what do I mean by that? Like, for example, if you've traveled recently and you went, and, um, you went on vacation for a week, you come home, go to the fridge, what do you do? You begin to check food and look at stuff, and you're like, is this good? You're checking expiration date, you pull out the milk, all of a sudden you see that there's like curdled parts of the milk. What would you not do? You wouldn't take that out and be like, look, the curdles are just on the top, let's strain this out, okay? Everything else is fine in here, unless you're psychotic, because that's not what normal, because you are rational enough to know, hey, if any part of this is not good, the whole thing's not good. And the Bible is crazy as it is, that is God's standard for heaven. That is God's standard in terms of goodness, that there is no person who has ever lived that is good, that is as good as God, that has lived in such a way that they could even be classified as good and certainly not classified as good enough for heaven. And the goal of the Christian life is not to just be good. It is so much more than that. And so Jesus engages in a conversation with this guy saying, hey, why do you call me good? There's nobody who's ever been good but God. And maybe you're thinking, um, isn't the Bible stories of good people and good principles? Like, isn't that kind of what the Bible is? Like a bunch of stories of people who try their best to kind of live a good life and some good guys in there and follow their example. No. The Bible is a story or story after story of a bunch of bad guys and one good guy. And the bad guys are so bad that they kill the one good guy. That's Jesus. And, and if, you don't think, if you think I'm kidding, no. Every single story you read person after person is someone who is totally broken, messed up, and God, despite all of that, uses them. I mean, think about it. Abraham, father of our faith. Remember Abraham? Father Abraham, many sons. Abe. Abraham pimps out his wife, Sarah, twice. I think we can all agree that's at least two times too many. That's Abraham. That's the guy that God's like, you, hey, I'm picking you, father of many nations. Everyone is going to be descended from you. That's the one that God chooses. David. Remember King David? Killed Goliath, went out there, slingshot, took him down. David sleeps with one of his best friend's wife and then kills him to cover it up. Think about that. That's the guy the Bible says, man, after God's own heart. That's what that guy is. I'm not even sure we'd let him serve at the porch. I mean, it's like, <laughs> he's a little crazy. For real. Moses. Moses had an anger problem to the point where he killed another guy with his bare hands. The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, the guy spent half of his life trying to stomp out Christianity. Oversaw people losing their lives. That's the guy that Jesus decided, you know what, we're going to let him write half of the New Testament. The Bible is not story after story of good people and good principles. It is a story about a bunch of bad, broken people and one good guy named Christ or Jesus who came into this world who died for all of the bad, different people. And the goal of the Christian life is not to just be good. And if you're ever going to step into experiencing everything God wants for you, you got to recognize that you in and of yourself are not a good person. Because that need of being a sinner sets you up to experience the solution of your Savior coming into your life. And with the, if you can't get there, you're never going to see a need for a Savior. But Jesus continues going in the conversation with the man and takes an interesting direction. Here's what he responds with in response to, hey, you know there's nobody good but God. You know the commandments. 
Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, the guy responds, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. I'm not, I'm not entirely confident this is right, but my guess is that's probably not true. And if I'm Jesus, I'm sitting there being like, all of these, really, huh? You've always honored your parents, your father and your mother, never sped on the camel, never done anything? Hmm. I would be like calling him out, like, hey, I don't know if you know this, but I'm God, and uh, I saw when you were 11, and 11 and a half, and 12 when you talk back to your mom, and every day of your life. And, uh, but Jesus doesn't do that at all. Here's what it says. I love this. And Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. And he said, one thing you lack. Go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, the man went away very sorrowful. He was sad because he had great possessions. What is Jesus saying? In Matthew's version of the story, Jesus said in response to the man saying, hey, look, I've done all the commandments, all of those five commandments. Interesting, there's only five of them. Come back to that in a second that he mentions. But I've done all of them my entire life. What else must I do? And in Matthew, it says, hey, if you want to be perfect, here's what you have to do. It's interesting, Jesus says, you still lack one thing. And then he tells them, like, at least four things to go do. Go, sell, give, follow. What's the one thing? What are you saying here, Jesus? Jesus is telling the man, hey, if you want to live by the standard of perfection and by the law, and you want to get into heaven or have a relationship with God according to the law, you've got to be perfect. You've got to follow everything that God's word has ever said. And clearly, you don't love your neighbor as yourself, which is a command, because you have all this money and there's a lot of poor people out there, so go sell everything that you have. Jesus wasn't against the man, and it wasn't even about money. Jesus loved this man, but he knew there was something that was holding him back from going all in with Jesus, and that was his money. Ultimately, what Jesus presses on is so relevant to our lives, because you know what disabled the guy from going and selling everything, from doing what God said to do, or from doing what Jesus, who is God, in that moment said to do? He didn't really believe Jesus was as good as he said. He really didn't believe Jesus was either God or that God was good and that everything God ever asks of me to do is always good. I can trust him. It's better than my plan. So I can go sell everything that I have and it's only gonna be for my benefit. I'm gonna see it's only better than I could have even imagined. And not believing God was good kept him from going all in with God. It was not believing fully. He may have said, you know, God is good, praise God. But there were areas of his life that didn't believe God's ways are always good. God's commands, God's will for your life is always good. And it kept him from going all in with God. And I think that truth is so relevant to us today because I think I know there's parts of my heart. When it comes to God's commands in the Bible, God's ways for my life, there's parts of me that are like, I don't know that I really believe God is as good as he says he is. Like, I think I would give more. If I really believe that, hey, everything that I ever give, like I'm gonna have treasure and have everything that I've ever given, I'll never regret anything that I sacrificed for God's kingdom. I think I would give more if I fully and totally believed God is as good as he says, so everything he tells me to do is good. 
I think I'd probably worry less. I think I'd care a lot less what other people think. And there's parts of my life and parts of your life that may not believe that God is as good, his ways are as good as he says that they are. I wrote my notes that anytime I resist the will of God, I resist what God's word in the Bible says, what his commands say, it reflects the fact that I don't believe God is as good as God says he is. Maybe even as I say he is. Because I think a lot of us in the room would be like, look, dude, God is great. God is good. He, he's Lord over everything. He's so good. But when it comes to you breaking up with your girlfriend, who you know, man, is not who God has for you. When it comes to you not living together before marriage, you're like, I can't do that. I mean, that's just crazy. That's just not wise. I mean, it's not what people do today. You don't believe God is as good as he says. He says, keep the marriage bed undefiled. You don't believe that's actually good. If you're doing it and you're like, hey, begrudgingly, I guess I'll do it and I don't really like to and I guess I have to to go to heaven. That's not believing that God and everything that he says in the Bible and every command that he gives you is really good. It's for your good. It's gonna lead to life. Like I can trust him, I can do it. I'll have no regrets in life. Take it to the bank. And sadly, I think if most of us were honest, there's parts of us that it's like, I just don't know that I actually believe doing what God says every time is really that good. Everything God commands is good. And this was a man who, he didn't believe that following Jesus' command would actually be something that for the rest of his days he would go, oh man, I never regret that decision. What's interesting is Jesus even says in a second, like four verses later, hey, this is not about money. This is about, do you trust me? Are you all in with me? Do you surrender? Do you believe that I'm as good as I say I am? Do you believe that I'm better than anything the world could offer? Do you believe that I'm better than your possessions? That's what this whole thing was about. It wasn't about money. How do I know that? Because in verse 28, think about these sentences. In verse 28, it says this. Peter said, after this whole thing goes down, God, we left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left a house or brothers or mother or father, children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold in this life, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last. In other words, people read this text and they're like, you see, Jesus is against you having stuff. That's insane. Jesus just said anyone who goes all in with his kingdom is going to have more stuff than ever before. For all of eternity, they're going to have a hundred times as much stuff. Jesus isn't against your stuff. And people will be like, hey, if you really want to be spiritual, you've got to give everything away and pretend like you like it. And that is not what the Bible teaches. And that's not the point he's trying to make. He's saying, do you believe me? I'm as good as I say I am. Who do you think that I am? Do you trust me? Are you going all in? Or are you just trying to control the circumstances and, and kind of get what you want, rich young ruler out of life? For you, maybe it's not money. Maybe you wouldn't be like, hey, you don't... You're like, oh, dude, I'll give it all away. I've got like $4. I'm all in. <laughs> I surrender it. But to you, and maybe he's saying, hey, are you willing to save sex for marriage? Are you willing to stop partying on the weekend? Are you willing to change the friend group that you're running with that you know they're pulling you down? Are you willing to give up alcohol? Are you willing to surrender the areas of your life that you know you're experiencing less than God's best. Areas where you're living just outside of what God says in his words. 
how to live and where life is found. And there's part of us, if you're resisting right now and you're like, no, I don't know that I could do that, are you willing to give up your reputation in your community group by bringing forward and confessing the sin that you've been hiding? Like you're like, I don't, I'm over it. I don't care what they think about me. I want to be free and I want to honor God. Are you willing to do that? And if not, it's because there's an area of your heart that doesn't believe God is as good as he says that he is and you can trust him and you can do what he says and it always leads to your good. Because that's what the Bible says. Some of us, sadly, man, we do what the rich young ruler did, which is like we, we want to have this relationship with God that's like friends with benefits. Like, you know what friends with benefits is? It's like whenever you have a relationship with somebody and you're like, hey, I'm for sure. You're in the friend zone, but you're kind of attractive enough for us to have casual sex every now and then. But we're definitely not getting married, and this is not that serious. And I kind of keep my options open still, and I get to fool around whenever I want to and kind of hook up and then also still date. It's telling that person that, hey, I, I like what I can get from you but I'm not ready to really commit to you and I want to explore because I think there's probably a better option out there. And a lot of people think that way and live that way with God. Where it's like, hey, I want to go to heaven when I die. I want to have everything that I want. I want to be able to have sex in as many windmills as I can possible and I want to do whatever I want to. But I'm not really ready to go all in. That, hey, I want to... I spend this season building my career and I know God is like, you're supposed to be involved in a church and I'm like, that's a little intense. I'll do that at some point. I'm gonna settle down and get more serious about my faith but I'm not ready to right now but I still wanna go to heaven when I die. Still love the good vibes that I get whenever I go and hear the service and yeah, it's good for me. Here we go. But I'm not ready to go all in. And it's like a weird friends with benefits thing where Jesus is saying, hey, just like in that scenario, the reason you don't go all in with her is because you're like, I think there may be something better. The same thing is being said about Jesus, where it's like, the rich young ruler looks at son of God in the face, and he says, oh, dude, I think I might have something better. That's insane. When I read that story, I'm like, dude, what did you even have? Like, you got a lot of possessions? Like a camel? What, what do you got in the first century? It's like, I got a lot of cool stuff here, Jesus. I don't know if I can give up this basket here, and... Uh, <laughs> And this is my camel, and it got a blanket, and uh, I don't think so. I mean, it's like, what? It's not like you have, like, an iPhone, and he's like, all right, well, Jesus, uh, I don't know. Do you, uh, how much, what can you do that an iPhone can do? It's not like he had, like, cool stuff, but he's still going. It's crazy. And from this vantage point, you're going, dude, you just turned down the Son of God. You were afraid of missing out, and look at what you missed out on. Like, think about that. That's crazy. This dude would have been the 13th disciple. He's the guy who told Jesus no. There's a very small list of people that said no to Jesus. There's a lot of people who wanted to follow Jesus that Jesus said no to. Slow your ride. To this guy, he says, follow me. And the guy says no. He, we would have been naming our children after him. It would have been Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Rory. Rory's over here. <laughs> Think about that. And he looked at the Son of God in the face and said, no, I really like my stuff. I wonder how much that's still happening today. We look God in the face, and as silly as that looks, we're like, really? A, a camel? Ten camels? A house? That's why you turn him down? It's got to look just as silly from eternity's vantage point where you're like, well, really? He asks you to save and 
when it came to dating, to date in a specific way and to preserve and pursue purity, and you were like, nah, I don't really care about that. You thought your way would be better than God's? You didn't think that you were gonna miss out on all that comes with the good life that God wants for you by following his ways, really? You wanna live for you in this life and spend all of your time just focused on you when he said anything you do in this life and in this world will be for all of eternity echoed. You, you wanna spend all of that on you? It's gotta look just as crazy. And the reason why it happens, I know in my life is because there's areas of my heart that do not believe God is as good as he says he is. His ways are as good as he says. And Jesus looks at the man and he pushes his thumb on that. You don't think you could trust me. And he loved him. This wasn't about his stuff. This was about a relationship. Finally, it says Jesus looked around as the man goes away sad. And he says, how difficult is it put this back up so we're not all looking at the little mustache this whole time. Just realize that. Sleep well. And uh, <laughs> says this. How difficult is it for those who have well to enter the kingdom of, have, of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it's impossible. But all things are possible for God. The disciples are astonished because in this day, in this time, the idea of a wealthy person was wealthy because God was blessing him. And Jesus just says, that's not what's going on. In other words, people have this wrong idea that, hey, if you're really wealthy, it's because you're hashtag blessed and God has blessed your life and that's why you're rich. And so you're gonna have a closer relationship with God. And Jesus says, that's not true at all. The point again, it's not about rich people. You can be rich and go to hell. You can be poor and go to hell. You can be rich and go to heaven and be poor and go to heaven. The point of the story is that dependence, the ability of being able to say, man, I'm not good, I need a savior, my obedience to keeping the commandments will never save me. Becoming a person who sees their desperate need for God to bridge the gap that their behavior can't do. Like, I can't be a good enough person. It's like, that becomes more and more difficult to see your need for God the more money that you have. That's all that he's saying. But if you read the last verse of this whole section, he says it's impossible for anyone to be saved. The man can never save himself, that only God saves, that God alone saves every single time. If you're in church for the first time in a while, I want you to listen to me. Keeping sacraments will not get you to heaven. Getting baptized will not save you. Your church attendance will not save you. Reading your Bible will not save you. Doing anything that involves you will not save you. Christianity is not what you achieve, it is who you receive, and Jesus. That's the message of the Christianity. And you don't have to accept that. Maybe you're like, huh, that's at least fascinating. You need to at least walk out of here if you don't have a Christian faith, knowing that's what the Bible teaches. It doesn't teach, hey, do a bunch of good things and good people, and this is what God is here for, good, good, good. It teaches that there's no one who can do good but God. And he came and he died for bad people like you and bad people like me. God alone is the one who saves. All that we do is we receive. We accept the free gift that God has offered us. What is the free gift? 
Jesus. And he gave his life. That's what he was doing on the cross. He died for you. The message of Christianity is not good people go to heaven and bad people in hell. It's forgiven people. And there's only one way to be forgiven. Forgiveness, what does it do? It restores a relationship. Like if I hurt you and we're upset with one another and then I come and I ask for forgiveness, it allows the relationship to heal. Jesus, in dying for you, extended the invitation that, hey, I've paid for everything wrong you did. It's forgiven. Forgiveness is yours, but you have to accept it. How do I accept it? Stop trusting in how good of a person you are. Stop believing that all these I've kept from my youth, and that's why I should get in. Honestly, the flip side is probably more relevant today. Less, I'd less hear people being like, look, I've kept all the commandments from my youth, and more like, I've just been a really bad person. And just like this guy's off because he's like, doing good gets me in. This guy is off because he thinks doing bad keeps me out. And the Bible doesn't teach any of that. It teaches trusting in Jesus is what grants access to eternal life. And the rich person in the story, the reason why it is so difficult is because he was unable to see his need for a savior and depend on himself, depend on the good things that he had done. How to, even right before this verse, or even right before this section, you know what it says? The verse is right before, I've never noticed this before. Like literally in Mark chapter 10, three verses before this story we're reading, it says this. And they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. So Jesus is sitting there, the rich young ruler is about to run up, he's sitting there hanging out, and people are like, oh, it's Jesus, bring our kids over there, maybe he can bless them, and the disciples are like, what do you think, is this Disney World? Get these kids out of here, and Jesus looks at them and says, he saw it and was indignant at the disciples, or upset. He said, let the children come to me, or little ones come to me. He's talking about little children. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. What is he saying? In Jesus' day, just like in our day, children were totally dependent on their parents. Like children didn't bring anything to the table, they didn't provide for themselves. They often didn't change their clothes, depending on their age. Like, they literally bring nothing to the table. Like I've got uh, two kids, I have a one-year-old daughter. She brings nothing to the table but need. I mean nothing. She brings, hey, I, she can't feed herself, she can't walk, she can't change her diaper. She literally brings nothing but noise into our home. That's her contribution. She's totally dependent. Before going into the story of the rich and ruler, Jesus said, you know how you enter the kingdom of God? totally dependent. You gotta see yourself as you bring nothing to the table but need. As easy as that sounds, for many of us, it's the hardest thing we can do. Because you still think that, man, your need keeps you out of heaven, your failure. You've brought a lie. Jesus in another place would say, you have to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes in order to enter heaven. In Matthew chapter five, verse 20, it says this, for I tell you, unless your righteousness, that's your behavior, unless your goodness exceeds the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. When his audience heard that, they would have gasped. 
Because the teacher of the law and the Pharisees, those dudes were like, they're professional Christians. This is what we do. They memorized the Old Testament. Most of them haven't read the Old Testament. They fasted all the time. Like they gave their whole life. God, you got all of it. And Jesus in the crowd, he looks at these guys. He said, unless you're a lot better than these guys, you're not getting into heaven. Unless the righteousness you have is better than them. This would be like me saying to you, hey guys, in order to get into heaven, you gotta be fast. And you might go, well, how fast? And I say, you gotta be faster than Usain Bolt. You would go, that's impossible. You mean the guy who literally holds the world record for fastest human of all time, that guy? Yeah, that guy. Well, if he's not good enough, then no one is good enough. Jesus would say, exactly. That's the point. If you try to act and behave your way, you're never gonna get there. The message of you obeying the law, and he looks into the eyes of this man saying, hey, you obeying the law was never to be the way that you could have a road to God. In the Old Testament, it was not given for that purpose, and you need to know this. Do you know what the very first thing that is given after the Ten Commandments? Remember I said earlier, Jesus, he goes through and he says off five of the Ten Commandments. Do you know in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20, God gives the Ten Commandments. You've probably heard the Ten Commandments before and he's sitting there and tells us that God comes to Moses and he's like, I write these things down and let my people go. And he gets the tablets and he's writing them out there and he's like, these are, these are awesome, dude. These are original and this is great. Don't commit adultery, you got it, don't kill. Goes through all Ten Commandments. Moses goes down the mountain. He, he's got the Ten Commandments with the guy. Do you know what the next thing that happens is? I mean, the very next thing that God says, here's what I want you to do next. Build an altar. Get the people together and build an altar. I know I just gave you the Ten Commandments and nobody's even tried to follow them yet. You're never gonna be able to. So build an altar and sacrifice to me on it. Think about that. Before anything has ever taken place or before any laws have even really been broken, God, he's like, here's the law and I know you're not gonna follow them. And so I need you to set up an altar to make sacrifices. It is the very next thing. The purpose of the law was never to give you some path. If you can keep these things, you can have a relationship with God. He knew that you couldn't. That's why the next thing he says, build an altar. And on it, you're gonna sacrifice to me for all the ways that you fail to live up to these 10 before anyone had even broken one yet. The engraving on the stone or ink, whatever they wrote with, hadn't even dried and God said, build an altar. Because the point was never that these things could earn your relationship with God. He knew that you were gonna fail. He knew that I was gonna fail. And he said, every time that you fail, I want you to sacrifice to me so that you associate sin and sacrifice together. Because it's gonna point ultimately to the great sacrifice that's coming, which is my son. It was never meant, the Old Testament was never some book that, hey, if you do these things, then you can have a relationship with God or keep these rules. Or else you gotta reconcile, that's insane. Here's the law and then build an altar because no one can keep it. That's what God says. And Jesus looks at this man who's bought the lie that if I keep everything, if I keep the commandments, then I can have a relationship with God. And he says, you missed it. As I said, the gospel says it's not about something you achieve or eternal life is not something you achieve, it's something you receive because it is not what you do. The man asks the wrong question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And the question over and over is who must I believe in? What must I receive in order to inherit eternal life? Because the gospel is not about what you do, it's about who you are in relationship with. 
or who you know. Not long ago, I was invited to go to, um, when Cowboys Stadium here in Dallas was, was shortly after it was built, Jerry Jones, or the Jerry World got built, and this massive stadium, and I had some friends that had a, uh, a suite, like they owned a suite inside of it, and so invited, got a chance to go with their family. And it wasn't just the up high suites, it was like suites I didn't even know existed. There's suites that are on the ground floor where you like, you step out of the stadium or out of your suite, sorry, and you walk up onto the field. And I'm going there and we park in this like special parking garage and it's like, dude, this, it, I didn't even know this existed. And everywhere you look, there's just like Dallas's who's who. And it's like, these are not my people. And these are a lot of shiny people in here. And uh, walking around and just kind of like seeing all of it and it's just like crazy, mind-blowing stuff. Like all the food that we ate inside of the suite was, was just, you've never been to a place that's so nice. You're like, uh, do you guys do to-go boxes or anything? And... <laughs> It was like, just blame me now. And they're like, sir, if, you don't, if we don't have something you like, just tell us we'll make any of it. It's like, I don't think I'm ever leaving here. And uh, it just was one thing after the next. It was amazing. And then at some point, we got to walk up on the field, and you're like 10 feet away. You're like, dude, there's Tony. There he is, Tony Romo. He's throwing it around and still not winning. And uh, it was just like this crazy, surreal experience. Sorry, Tony. And, uh, and it just was this amazing deal. And I remember thinking, like, bro, this is crazy. How did, uh, they've got to be thinking, who is that guy? What is he doing in here? There's some imposter amongst us. We can tell because he's not dressed like us. And, uh, and then realizing I have every right to be here. Not because I deserved it, not because I earned it, not because I paid for it, but because I'm with their son. Because of who I'm with. In the same way, that's what Christianity says. The reason why you can have eternal life and you have access to the suite of heaven is because you are with the Son, the Son of God, not their Son in there. And what you have been given access to is far greater than any suite that we could experience in this life. And the only way that you can have access to God, have access to eternal life with him, is because you're associated with the Son. The Bible says when you trust in Jesus, you are placed in Christ. That he no longer looks at you and he sees you. He sees all of the righteousness of God. That's what the Bible teaches as it relates to you. He doesn't see your sin. Whatever you did today, if you're a Christian and you're in Christ, you are the righteousness of God. Think about that. Because of what you do? Because of who you are with, who you are associated with, Jesus. That's the message of Christianity. Conclusion, there's no one who's good. And the goal is not to be good. He came to make dead people alive. Resisting God's will reflects areas where we just don't believe God is as good as he says. And some of you need to hear and be reminded tonight, or you need to hear for the first time, you can't save yourself. Only Jesus saves. And if you're ever gonna have that eternal life, it's gonna come by doing what this young man didn't do. Trusting in Jesus. The irony of the whole story is Jesus is like 32 years old. He's sitting there and he's looking eyeball to eyeball with this guy. He's probably about his age. Some really striking similarities if you think about it. They're both young. We're told the young man was rich. Is there anyone who's ever lived richer than Jesus? No. He's the richest there has ever been. All things are his. This man owned a house and home and some stuff. Jesus owned all of it, everything. This young man was a ruler. 
get some authority and influence. Jesus was also a ruler. He ruled over not just some synagogue, over all things. That Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler. He's a greater, more true, and he's a rich young ruler that was willing to do what this young ruler was not. Go to greater lengths out of the expression, expression of his love to sacrifice everything. That I'll lay down even my life. That's what the Bible says. The Christ became infinitely more poor, was as rich as you could be, and left the riches of heaven to become poor so that in him, you who are poor might become rich. And he's given himself, despite the fact that it's to people who hold on to things, who hold on to relationships, who hold on their, their method of dating, who hold on to anxiety, who hold on to all kinds of different things that only hurt them. That if they would just let go, there'll come a day where they look back and they're like, oh, I can't even believe I was tempted to hold on to that. And despite all of that, he came and died. He laid all of it aside for you, for me, for this young man who never even trusted in him, as far as we know. He's the richest of all, the ruler of all, and the savior of all who will trust in him. Let me pray. Father, you are worthy of all, all of our life, our hearts, our self, our stuff, our time, our years, and we confess we have divided hearts, we have divided minds, we have chased after idols and sin, we've looked for security in money, we've looked for identity in relationships, we have despaired over circumstances rather than trust you, and we are in desperate need of you winning more ground in our hearts, and so we ask you to do that, God. We invite you here, and we invite you to take more ground in our heart. God, start with me. Would you be the ruler of our life, our stuff, ourselves? I pray for anyone who's never trusted in you, God. Tonight, you would do what only you can do, which is save. Awaken them to the reality. They have bought the lie just like this young man. That if they're just good enough, they just live enough consecutive days doing some good stuff that you'll love them, they can have certainty with you. Or they'll just go a long enough time without whatever sin they feel like has owned them, then you'll love them. You would break through that wall. We worship you now in song. Amen.